Well, when people say they value autonomy, they typically mean they value and respect your ability to decide what you're going to do. And the truth is, we don't always respect that. Because if you decide that you want to punch some innocent person in the nose, then we go, oh, wait a minute. Interference is not only permissible, it's obligatory. Because we think in that case, you've made a bad decision. And a lot of those cases, we think it is fine to stop you from what you're doing. And all that I'm arguing here is that just as I can stop you from hurting someone else, it's also permissible in many cases to stop you from hurting yourself. That was today's guest, Dr. Sarah Conley. We'll be diving much deeper into this provocative topic in today's episode. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, where we tirelessly make overshoot and overpopulation common knowledge. That's the first step in right-sizing the scale of our human footprint so that it is in balance with life on Earth, enabling all species to thrive. I'm Nandita Bajaj, co-host and executive director of Population Balance. And I'm Alan Ware, co-host of the podcast and researcher with Population Balance, an organization that educates about and offers solutions to address the impacts of human overpopulation and overconsumption on the planet, people, and animals. In today's episode, we're going to take a dive into some key philosophical questions with our guest, Dr. Sarah Conley, such as, what is autonomy? Does liberty have intrinsic value? And do we have a right to have as many children as we want, arising from our general right to live autonomously? Sarah Conley was born in Washington, D.C. She received her B.A. from Princeton University and her Ph.D. from Cornell University. She has taught philosophy at a very large school, the University of Michigan, and a very small school, Bowdoin College. She's also held fellowships at Harvard, St. Andrews, and the University of Chicago, and will be a visiting scholar at the National Institutes of Health in the fall of 2022. She's the author of Against Autonomy, Justifying Coercive Paternalism, and One Child, Do We Have a Right to More?, she retired from teaching in 2021 and now lives in Costa Rica, where she's working on a book on liberty, arguing that it has no intrinsic importance. Sarah, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us. You've been doing some cutting-edge work in the area of bioethics and philosophy, which has inspired so many of us in the field. We want to start by thanking you for what you're doing and for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. When you write philosophy, you always wonder if anyone at all is reading it. So it's gratifying <laughs> to find out that there are some people and that some of them at least actually have found it enjoyable and interesting. Absolutely. We've read all of your work so far, and we're looking forward to exploring later in the interview the latest work you're working on, on liberty. But we'll start the interview with one of the earlier books you wrote called Against Autonomy, Justifying Coercive Paternalism, which is a very provocative title. And of course, there are some keywords here that would make a lot of people nervous, like against autonomy using coercion, etc. And perhaps that is why it was such a compelling read and helped me understand why these words shouldn't make us nervous. You start off by arguing that having absolute autonomy is a fallacious idea, even though 
it almost seems like basic human nature to value autonomy. Can you give us a brief overview of why you make that claim? Well, when people say they value autonomy, they typically mean they value and respect your ability to decide what you're going to do. And the truth is, we don't always respect that. Because if you decide that you want to punch some innocent person in the nose, then we go, oh, wait a minute. Interference is not only permissible, it's obligatory. Because we think in that case, you've made a bad decision. Because the truth is, we don't always think that people make good decisions. We don't always think they make rational decisions. And a lot of those cases, we think it is fine to interfere in a coercive way, to stop you from what you're doing. And all that I'm arguing here is that just as I can stop you from hurting someone else, it's also permissible in many cases to stop you from hurting yourself. And if that takes coercion, that's what it takes. And you've also mentioned in your book that as much as we all like to think that we are fully autonomous beings or that we should have full autonomy, we are actually quite irrational in our thinking and we don't always know what's good for us, let alone what's good for other people. So what is this idea of autonomy that people have and why is it a false narrative? Yeah, ever since at least I think the Enlightenment, there's been a European and later American tradition that People are capable of being perfectly rational. And we recognize that people sometimes act irrationally, but the idea is they are capable of being completely rational if they just try harder. And what we know now is that that simply is not true. So over the last few decades, more and more research has been done into what is often called behavioral economics. So behavioral economics is economic theory based on how people actually behave, as opposed to classical economics that sets up a, a theory about how we would behave. Behavioral economics says, you know, people aren't actually doing what we think they would do if they were rational. So they have discovered these various biases that we are all prone to. We don't all make the same mistakes every time, but we all make some mistakes sometimes. So for example, we tend to suffer from what's called an optimism bias, where if you tell me how many people get very sick from smoking cigarettes and you say it's this percentage, and then you ask me as a smoker, if I were, how likely I am to get those diseases, I go, oh no, not me. I'm different. Why? I'm not. That's just a bias. If you ask people how likely they are to be hit by lightning and you tell them how many people are hit in general, they think I'm less likely. Except I will say some people have a pessimism bias where they <laughs> think they're more likely to suffer some kind of harm. But most have an optimism bias. And it's just not based on reason. It's a quirk in our thinking. And that is one of many ways that when we're trying to make a good decision, we get screwed up. We sort of know the facts, but they don't really penetrate in a way that helps us to decide. So there's that. Then, as you said, we are really influenced by the society around us, even if we think we shouldn't be. 
So tests on social influence go back even earlier towards the beginning of the 20th century, where if I'm in a group and we're asked a factual question, if the majority of the group says one thing, even if I didn't think it was right, I start to change my mind. I start to think, I guess the group must be right. Why? There are probably evolutionary reasons, but it's not simply based on reason. And we're all familiar with this. I mean, if it's something like fashion, you know, at one point we think something's hideous and later we think it's really attractive. Why? Because some social influencers took it up and we're like, oh, yeah, I guess it is attractive. And this is something chimpanzees (laughs) do. Seriously. They will copy a high-ranking chimpanzee and change what they're doing when they won't copy a low-ranking one. So chimps were the original social influencers. So none of those things are based on reason, and they're an unavoidable part of the human condition. You know, we can raise some awareness of them, but we can't just say, okay, from now on, I won't be influenced by society. Good luck with that. We can't say, okay, from now on, I'm going to be completely rational. I'll never be biased. Doesn't happen. So the whole idea that we are rational agents capable of deciding what to do is just mistaken. Of course, sometimes we can, but we can't be sure when we're capable of being rational and when we're not capable. So I argue we need help, especially when the consequences are really serious. Right. You make a good point that limiting choice can increase freedom, that when we're given too much choice, we get overwhelmed and make bad decisions. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, that is something we're familiar with, and not just in psychology tests, but in life. If you go, as I've done, I've gone to the pharmacy and tried to count how many kinds of shampoo they have on offer. And I always give up when I reach about 110 because there are not that many brands, but there are shampoos if you want your hair to be shinier, if you want more curls, if you want fewer curls, if you don't want it to be frizzy, if your hair is dry, if your hair is oily, if your hair is partly dry and it's partly oily. (laughs) And what happens at a certain point, people just grab a bottle of shampoo because enough already. I just want to wash my hair. (laughs) Right. So choice per se is overwhelming. And I, for a lot of my life, thanks, don't want to have to do the research that would be involved. Shampoo, not so important. But what is required for a car to be safe? That's a really complex issue. Do I really want to take enough physics so that I know what makes a car survive a crash test and what degree of wear is safe on your tires and No, I don't. Thanks. I'd rather somebody else did that and came up with standards. And meanwhile, I can save my choice making for things that I care about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's liberating to have other people looking into what's a carcinogen, looking into what's a safe car, all of that stuff. Because the truth is, I just wouldn't do it. And then I'd crash while eating my carcinogenic food. (laughs) (laughs) And what I'm promoting is just an extension of that. And people resist it because they think, well, okay, fair enough. I don't understand car mechanics. I don't understand medicine, but I do understand lots of other things. But the truth is, there are a lot of other things you don't understand either, where we need the same kind of experts to help craft the rules so that we can choose wisely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you discussed there are several different methods of societal guidance that we use to encourage change in beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors, and you identify three main types in your book, liberalism, libertarian paternalism, and coercive paternalism. Could you describe each of those and give us some examples and maybe benefits and disadvantages to each approach? Sure. I mean, liberalism is based pretty much on the classic belief that we are rational people, and if we have the right information, we'll make the right choice. So a typical liberal approach to a decision is to give you information. And I'm fine with giving people information. I don't object to that. It's just, I think it's not enough. Liberal paternalism tries to give you what Sunstein and Thaler, the authors of Nudge, called a nudge. That is, they don't take away any choices, but they try to incentivize you making a good choice. So a classic example that they use is that if people in a cafeteria line are prone to choose whatever's on the middle shelf, and they are prone to choose that, that you should put the fruit and healthy stuff on the middle choice. So they make it easier. Mm-hmm. They use your own bias, that is this irrational tendency to choose from the middle shelf to get you to choose something healthy. Great. I have got nothing against that. It's just that it isn't always enough. Which brings us to coercive paternalism. So coercive paternalism says, look, sometimes we just need to eliminate some choices. That's that. So a coercive paternalist would say, there are certain goals that we're pretty sure are important to people. One is good health, long life. If we have reason to believe, and we do, that drinking soda has a bad effect on your health, there are a lot of things you could do. You could make soda illegal. Or you could tax it in a way that would be prohibitive. I personally am for making it illegal because you can have a good life without Coca-Cola. I know that's a shocker to some people, but you can. (laughs) Same with smoking, which I talk about in the book. Smoking's such an obvious case. It's hardly worth talking about. If cigarettes were introduced today, they wouldn't be allowed. It's a carcinogen. They're only allowed because basically the tobacco industry has a lot of power. But as a new thing, we'd say that's ridiculous. You can't sell things that cause cancer and have no positive effects. So I would say, fine, ban them. That's way easier than even taxing them more, which we do. Taxing them more raises some revenue. And there are fewer people that smoke now in the U.S. than there used to be. That's good. But still, there's 14% of the adult population that smokes regularly. And most of those end up, if they do it for life, with smoking-related weaknesses or illnesses. So let's get rid of it. The behavioral economics piece that you brought up is so interesting because a lot of marketing is based on that, but not in a paternalistic way. It's usually in a manipulative way right? to get us to buy Things that are not great for us. The first time I heard about behavioral economics was probably 10 years ago at a presentation where one of the presenters was speaking about Starbucks and how they use behavioral economics to get people to buy a larger size of coffee. They realize that people tend to buy a size that's usually in the middle 
It's not too small, not too large. Mm -hmm. Uh, And medium was the most common size of a coffee cup that people were buying. And so they created extra, extra large so that the medium was now shifting closer to the right. And they were able to charge more for the new medium, which does not sound very paternalistic, but definitely manipulative. But there are so many other ways in which behavioral economics has been used, as you say, to nudge good behavior. We see that, for example, with organ donation, opt-in versus opt-out for different countries, Mm -hmm. where people have to do extra work to opt-in to do something they know they'd rather do, but they just, there's a lot of inertia to engage in it. It's just better for countries or organizations to have an opt-out policy so that they can play into people's laziness and benefit from that. I don't know if it's laziness, but it is what they call the a bias for the default option. Yeah. And it's a very peculiar thing because you don't actually have to have a whole lot of energy to check a little box that says, yes, I want to donate my organs. But people don't. So it's not just that it's an effort. It's somehow we are disinclined to change what we're offering. And many more people in the U.S. say that they want to donate organs than actually check the little box saying there'll be an organ donor. So it's not that they're actually against donating organs. It's just that they would have to do something. It's not something hard, but we just tend to say, okay, I accept what I'm given. And yeah, countries that have an opt-out policy are doing way better in terms of organ donation because the same thing. If people really don't want to give their organ, fine. They can say, no, it's against my religion. Okay. But people don't because they're not against it. They go with what is offered. Yeah. And yet in the United States, adopting an opt-out policy is very controversial because it doesn't respect autonomy. Right. And to that point, especially when you talk about the benefits of coercive paternalism that actually end up benefiting us individually, there is a lot of backlash, as you just mentioned, to the aspect of coercion. It's associated with denying people's rights of self-determination. People often conflate it with seeing as being disrespectful, or you're somehow perpetuating inequity, or that it's infantilizing are degrading people's autonomy. You discuss in your book that a course of paternalism doesn't do all of those things. Can you share briefly how course of paternalism actually addresses some of these concerns? Yeah, it doesn't do any of those things. It's not disrespectful. It doesn't promote inequality, and it doesn't infantilize. It's not disrespectful. One, what the paternalist wants to do is help you reach your own goals. They're not imposing goals on you. They want to promote the goals you already have. And the idea is that sometimes you choose badly in light of where you want to end up. And given that, the paternalist respects your goals. And I think, for example, seatbelts are respectful because who has a goal of shooting through the windshield and dying on the asphalt? No one. And yet there are anti-paternalists who say, I'm respecting her autonomy when I let her not use her seatbelt. 
she made a poor choice and so now she's going to die, but that's respectful of me. No, it's not. So we are respectful. Second, it doesn't promote inequality. Paternalism is a recognition of a shared condition. We're all in this boat. We've all got problems in certain areas. So just as we benefit from prescription medicine, we would benefit, that is medicine only allowed by prescription, we would benefit from not having cigarettes, from not having soda. So I'm in favor of democracy. We would together make these choices, given our goals, and given that some things obstruct our reaching those goals, usually things that are very profitable for someone, we would get rid of the obstacles as a group. So it's it's all about us, all of us. There's no exclusion. There's no group that is somehow above the problem of irrationality. Third, infantilizing. No. Some people say paternalism infantilizes you because it doesn't allow you to learn from your own mistakes. The problem with that argument is One, often we just don't learn from our own mistakes. It's nothing to do with being treated as an infant. If you go bankrupt, you might think that banks would be eager to lend to you on the grounds that you've learned from your mistake. Surprise, they're not. Because people, they tend to do that over and over. People who procrastinate, and I know a lot of them, they don't procrastinate once and then go, oh, that didn't work. From now on, then I'll just do my work on time. (laughs) No, they keep trying it, even though it fails every time they still have to do the work. And now they don't have as much time. So often we don't learn from our mistakes. Second, sometimes when we do learn, it's too late. So I've known smokers with cancer who are like, okay, right. Now I get it. Smoking was bad. Yeah, well, now you've got cancer. It's kind of late to say, well, you can learn from your mistake and stop smoking now that you've got stage four lung cancer. It's too late to go back and change that. So to me, it just seems cruel, really, to say, well, go ahead and make your mistake. And yeah, you're going to suffer forever, but at least I'm not treating you like an infant. It's like, thanks anyway. (laughs) Right. I would like some help. And we know, furthermore, when you make a good decision, You get better at making good decisions. And when you make a bad decision, you keep making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. When I was little, I took piano and I was ambitious and I would play a piece too fast and I hit a wrong note. And my teacher said, look, every time you hit that wrong note, you're more liable to hit it the next time because you're teaching your fingers the wrong thing to do. So learning the uh, wrong note reminds me of what you mentioned somewhere about Aristotle and habituation. you learning good habits, it reinforces good habits, and bad reinforce bad, which makes a lot of sense. So in our work in the sustainable population arena, we see examples of the three types of approaches you've mentioned. For example, at population balance, we lean heavily towards advocacy and education to encourage attitude and behavior change, which you call liberalism. Some others are using norm-shifting storytelling to do the same, which could fall into the category of libertarian paternalism, or you're calling it liberal paternalism. And what role do you see coercive paternalism playing in creating a more sustainable population? Well, I think all three of those approaches are important. Again, I have nothing against education, 
I think, though, it's hard to do. It's hard to reach everyone. And if you do reach them, it's hard to make these facts really vivid. So I advocate a sort of tiered system that is certainly, I would say, education is good. I would do what might be called a libertarian paternalist approach also of just making it easier to have fewer children. So one thing I really think we should do is make contraception readily available everywhere for free. And a lot of people say in the United States have argued that you shouldn't need a prescription to get birth control pills because basically birth control pills are not particularly dangerous. Again, like aspirin, there could be people for whom they're a bad idea, but typically they are not a bad idea. They are better than an unwanted pregnancy for many reasons. So we could just say those should be available over the counter you know, stock them on the shelves, make it very easy. The same with the day after pill. And again, not just the pill, but an array of choices. So I would say we should supply those for free and we should make them very easy to get. So you don't have to get on the bus to go downtown, to go to a doctor, just have them in any local drugstore, any grocery store, whatever. Great. I'm all for that. I think it might do some good. Beyond that, we have to see if that's not effective in reducing numbers the way we need them to be reduced. I do talk about having to pay a tax penalty for having more than one child. And whether that's what you call a libertarian paternalist nudge or a coercive paternalist shove, really depends on the degree of the amount you would have to pay. But it is something that we could do. At present, there's a actually a tax benefit for having more children. Bad idea. So I would say a tax penalty. And we are also receptive to the fact that if something costs more, that makes us want to do it less. We know that in the past, when there have been depressions or recessions, the fertility rate has dropped because if people have less money and having kids costs a lot, the financial costs are proportionately more, so they don't want to have them. But no policy requires or even expects to get 100% compliance. What you want is enough compliance to reach the desired goal. I would have it geared to income so that it wouldn't just be rich people can have all the kids they want and poor people can't, Mm -hmm. but we could do that. And on my argument, it wouldn't violate any rights. And definitely not a violation of bodily autonomy, right? Like a one-child policy or anything. You know, bodily autonomy, there is a sense in which it would change your decision about what to do with your body. But we have lots of rules like that. You know, no trespassing rules convince you not to enter a place with your body if you're going to be punished for that. So it would change your decision about what to do, but it's not an actual invasion. Right. Like you mentioned with seatbelt laws being a form of coercive paternalism, right? Exactly. You do it because, well, initially you do it because the law has changed and you could be punished. Eventually that just becomes a social norm and you don't even think about it. And I actually remember when they started making seatbelts required 
And a lot of people were like, oh, no, that's so stupid. I have the right to drive without a seatbelt. Yeah. But after a while, people sort of got the message that, you know, flying through your windshield is not a great statement about personal autonomy. And so younger people just take it for granted. Of course, you put on your seatbelt. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And you've actually taken the position in your book, One Child, Do We Have a Right to More?, that people don't have a moral right to more than one child. Can you speak to that? Yes. So some people seem to think that if they want something, they have a right to it. Well, surprise, that's not true. Thoughtful people realize that if you claim you have a right to something, you have to provide a justification for that claim. Typically, there are two ways of justifying a rights claim. One is we sometimes say you have a right to something if it is absolutely essential to living a decent human life. So, for example, people have argued we have a right to food. We should provide food for everyone because you can't have a good life if you're starving. People have argued we have a right to health care because you can't have a good life if you are extremely sick or in pain. However, you can have a good life with only one child. I think you can have a good life with no children, but I'm not pushing that right here. Clearly, you can have a good life with only one child. You might have preferred to have two children, but that doesn't mean you have a basic need to have more than one child without which your life is not worth living. One child is plenty. It allows you the parental bond, which is a lovely bond. And often you can have that to adoption, but let's say there are people who feel they can only have it with a biological child, fine. You would have that relationship. You don't need it repeated. The second basis for saying that you have a right is just the general claim that we have a right to live the way we want. And that's called a general right to autonomy, to make decisions how to live. But of course, everyone admits that that right is limited by the effects your action has on other people. So my autonomous desire to hit my neighbor across the face does not give me a right. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. My autonomy doesn't extend that far. So my desire to do anything that hurts other people significantly doesn't give me any sort of right. And where we are at this point in time Unluckily for us, having more than one child does do great harm to others. And I think a lot of people can understand and imagine what it means to cause harm when you physically harm somebody by slapping them across the face, for example. Not everybody can make the connection how they're having a child or more than one child is harmful to others. It's still seen as a exclusively personal and isolated decision that intending parents are making. What are the harms? How do we convey that harm? Well, what we're worried about is what we generally call a harm to the environment. But one problem with harming the environment is it harms people living in the environment. So how does having a child harm the environment? A lot of people realize that we are in danger, that climate change is obvious, but there are other environmental problems. So people say, well, I'll be a vegetarian or I'll walk to work. Great. All for that. But having one child 
outweighs all the costs to the environment of the various things that you can do while you are living. So it has, even one child has a big, big impact over the course of that child's life, even if they live a relatively simple life. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, it's not just you. So most environmental damage now occurs through small increments. All I do is drive my gas-guzzling car really fast because it's fun. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is people everywhere doing that then has a terrible effect, Mm -hmm. right? It causes all this pollution. The carbon emissions are terrible. It does harm because you weren't the only person on Earth. And I know you've already spoken to it briefly. How do you envision framing this in terms of policy reform? So I think you said taxing. And, you know, the tendency for most people is to jump to China's one-child policy. So how do we shift this narrative away from a draconian implementation, what Alan was referring to as an attack on bodily autonomy that some countries are engaging in to a more reasonable limitation of these rights that are in balance with responsibilities towards others. I think one thing that's important to remember is that we have already started to have fewer children than our parents did. So it's not like we're actually trying to change a trend towards having large families Because of, I'm not sure why, because of the cost of having children, because of increased uh, rights for women around the world and increased education for women, we already see a trend to a smaller fertility rate, a smaller number of children per woman. And most of the places that still have a very high fertility rate are also places that don't have access to contraception because they don't have good access to healthcare. So... Again, I would frame it about family planning. You know, what sort of family is best? You can give your child the most advantages, the best education. If there's only one child, make your child's life as good as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And with that, we have education about overpopulation. But as they say in the U.S., you can get a credit for more children, eliminate that. Mm -hmm. And then you can just start small and say, yeah, you know, there's this extra education tax. There's an extra tax for use of the roads if you're going to be driving more with more children. You just increase those. And as you do that, I think it becomes recognized that, yeah, if you had more children, you should pay more than other people do. So it has to be somewhat gradual. But I think People can be receptive. And I think you're right. Framing is important. But what we know in China, now that they've essentially eliminated the one-child policy, people still say they just want to have one child. Right. Because there are so many advantages to that. It's such a good point because there have been other countries where educational and empowerment means were used to allow people to to start using contraception. And there are places like Thailand and Iran, Iran especially where they had a really excellent educational campaign that was designed to help educate parents about the benefits of small families. 
And within a couple of decades, the fertility rate dropped from about six children per woman to under two. And soon after, the new leadership put in pronatalist policies, and in Iran is currently under heavy pronatalism, where they are trying to reverse this trend of lowering fertility to encourage population growth by blocking access to contraception and reproductive health care. But like you say, people have become used to the idea of smaller families and they see the benefit of smaller families that some of these pronatalist policies are actually not working. Because once people become aware of the benefits of personal and reproductive autonomy, you don't want to go back to being, I guess, under the pronatalist constraints. And really on that point, I also wanted to add that at Population Balance, we have taken the position that pronatalism is a form of coercion. Its goal is to increase birth rates to certain ends, such as increase the number of religious followers, having more taxpayers, more consumers, or a larger military base. So here we're actually using people as inputs, as a means to other ends. It's not actually benefiting the families or the children themselves. So we believe that pronatalism, whether it's subtle or coercive, is actually at the heart of our unchecked population growth problem. What measures do you think would be the most effective in countering pronatalism before we even get to engage in coercive paternalism? Because it's, it's two ends of a spectrum. One is coercive pronatalism. One is coercive paternalism. Is there a sweet spot in there where we can start negating pronatalism to just allow smaller family norms to naturally emerge? Or do you think paternalism is needed in this case to help with the norm shifting? It's always going to be difficult if you have people in power who are both stupid and selfish. (laughs) And often we do have those people in power. So selfish, because as you say, they're not doing this for the sake of the citizens. They're doing it usually for more power and money for themselves. And it's stupid because it's a short-term policy. Because what we find is that pronatalism often results in a crash because there's no social structure to deal with the number of people that are born. So you get cities built of trash with no sorts of services that surround inner cities where rich people live. You get vast amounts of unemployment. You get people leaving the country and going to the city because there's no jobs in the country, but then they get to the city and there are no jobs. So then what do you do? You turn to crime. None of these things are successful in promoting the welfare of the actual country. And as you say, we see this in some places with pronatalist policies, the actual people are saying, thanks anyway. You can say you're going to give me a cash payment per kid, but that actually isn't going to work for me in the long run. So again, in a case like that, exposure to the facts, to what it's like, can cause resistance by the people, which hopefully, ideally, results in a change of government. And that kind of population growth, of course, is always a Ponzi scheme because those young people become old at some point and then require even larger families. It's something that has to end at some point. 
So to keep the pronatalism going for the sake of economy, taxpayers, military, just is a dead end. I like that you also mentioned that we can have freely decided goals. It's the means over which we're debating and that health, as you note, is a value that most people can agree on. And I like that you put the health of the planet's other species, the health of future humans and present humans right up front and center as a goal that we can all agree on and that coercive paternalism can serve that goal. Yes, I think everyone agrees. We want there to be a healthy planet. We want those children we do have to live in a healthy planet. The problem is people, again, don't see why having more than one child prevents that. And that's where we need the approach of education and incentives and, if necessary, coercive measures. And I should say, I'm for coercion if it's necessary. If it's not necessary, great. I'm just saying it is justified because we're talking about the life of the planet. And when it comes to destroying the environment and everyone who lives in it, coercion is justified. We can stop you from doing that. Right. You do mention that having children have a better ecological education would be a first great step, right? So that more people are raised with this knowledge of the ecological situation of the planet and that it takes a lot of repetition for someone to learn a new set of paradigm, really, over their lifetime. It doesn't just fall in their lap. They have to learn it over years, in many cases. Yes, it really helps because speaking as an old person, it's hard for old people to change sometimes. And we see that (laughs) with diet. It's like, I've always been eating this way. It can't be bad for me because I've always done it. Well, it doesn't actually follow. So young people who are raised differently, and especially if they're used to the idea of a very small family or no kids, to them, it's like, sure, why not? Like no kids, there's all this freedom. Whereas when I was growing up, it was just thought it was the norm. Of course, you'd have children. You know, they used to say you were selfish if you didn't have children. So, yeah, I think education for young people is vital. And in many places, at least, it is happening and it is making a difference. That's why people a generation younger than I are having fewer children than people in my generation. And the generation younger than I'm pretty old now. So uh, two generations younger are having fewer children. And another interesting thing you brought up is how education needs to be a precursor. So there's this progressive steps towards getting to behavior change. So starting with liberalism or education, then going into behavioral nudges, and then if necessary and warranted, then going into course of paternalism as the last resort. And sometimes the main resort when it comes to things like prescription medication and seat belts and food inspection and all of the other things you've already spoken about. And One thing I was reminded of is there are so many countries where contraceptives may be easily available, but there are so many superstitions around the use of contraceptives because they are mired in a type of patriarchal, religious propaganda where people are afraid to use contraceptives even though they are available. And that's where I feel your idea of libertarian paternalism, of behavioral nudges through norm-shifting campaigns like what Population Media Center is doing is really effective because they're, they're showing examples of people within communities who are positively 
employing these methods. And the benefits of small family through telenovelas and radio shows and TV shows, and that that is having a very good impact in terms of contraceptive uptake. We as Americans need to remember that we need local people working on this. It's not for some American to go somewhere to a different country and say, here's what you should do, because everyone's going to go, what do you know about it? You have to have local people making these educational efforts, people who will literally speak the language, but who understand the culture, who understand the ideas. So yeah, I think everything you're saying is correct. I'm just stressing we need involvement by the local communities. It's good to have it local, too, in the sense of paternalism requiring a certain amount of social trust, which we're definitely seeing break down, especially institutional social trust in so many governments around the world, which is very concerning. And it's hard to know how to build that back on a macro level, but I think it does start with paying attention to local cultural context, local conditions to be sensitive to that. Otherwise, the anti-expertise elements that have risen really, since you wrote the book, they're not trusting that government often has their best interest, it seems. And the, they're not trusting that governments can institute things effectively. So that's a, a broad problem it looks like we're facing in a lot of these collective action problems where you've mentioned we have significant harm and now we need coordination. And it seems we have to first be able to see the harm together which often we don't seem to be able to do in various societies, or we interpret the harm very, very differently. It seems more divisively than we used to. And then what level do we coordinate at? I suppose you don't have any great ideas of how to rebuild social trust, do you? (laughs) If I knew how to restore faith in government, I'd run for president. Uh, The United States, what can I say? It's a mess and No, to make a long story short, no, I don't know. Obviously, some people have been doing their very best to destroy trust. Thank you very much. You succeeded. And now we got people trying to build it up again, but it's going to be a tough process. And of course, social trust is also a function of the number of people that are being added to each of the countries and the democracies. So in addition to the lack of trust in the government, there's also a dilution of democracy with additional people. Yes, it's hard to feel a sense of identity with 330 million other (laughs) Americans. And, you know, we know smaller communities, even when there's its agreement, also are able to help one another. You know, they get a sense of we're all in this together. And it's hard to do that across a huge, huge number. So yeah, I think that increasing of population leads to a sort of fragmentation just when we need cooperation. And it leads to greater complexity of everything and the need for more rules for people who really like to think of themselves as libertarians or highly autonomous. The higher the population, the more the scale, the more rules you need the more complex. It's also kind of ironic that a lot of the libertarianism is growing at a time when we're actually more helpless, (laughs) that we rely on global interdependence more than ever. And yet people have the illusion that they're in some fundamental way autonomous. And libertarians don't want to be interfered with by other people, but the more people there are, the more interference is inevitable. There's nothing you can do that won't affect another person. Right. So 
if you want your independence, for one thing, we simply need fewer people so you can actually live a relatively untouched life, relatively. So libertarians should be for steps that will reduce population, if only for the sake of increasing the range of individual liberty that's allowed. That kind of reminds me of uh, the latest book you're working on, arguing liberty has no intrinsic importance. Could you give us a little preview of that? Well, sure. Well, my first book was on paternalism. So the idea that you shouldn't always be given the liberty to do what you want to yourself. The second book was on you shouldn't always be given the liberty to do things, certain things that will affect others, namely have more than one child. So the third book just focuses on this idea of liberty, because I've talked about affecting other people. I've talked about affecting yourself. And I think the unarticulated basis for both those arguments is liberty matters when it produces something that's good, either good for you or good for others. And if it's not doing that, it has no value. Thus, as we say in philosophy, it has instrumental value only. It's only good as a means to an end. And if a certain liberty isn't bringing about something good, or if it's bringing about something bad, that isn't, in fact, something you have a right to, that liberty has no value. So to me, this is pretty straightforward and obvious, but apparently it's not obvious to everyone because some people say, well, liberty is just good to have it. And I'm like, well, when? <laughs> right. When we talk about give me liberty or give me death, that was about self-government. Okay, I'm for self-government. I can see that. When we talk about my liberty to drink a 32-ounce soda, that's intrinsically important. I'm like, you know, actually, you know, it isn't. You know, if we limited the amount of soda you could buy, nothing would be lost. Get with it. There is no value to that liberty. <laughs> that is all I'm saying. Then when we look at actual examples, we go, oh, here's why. In some cases, it's worth dying for liberty. And that is about self-respect through self-government. And in other cases, liberty is totally worthless. Right. That's it. Yeah. Looking at the long arc of humanity, the 290,000 years before agriculture and civilization and larger scale societies and modern day hunter gatherers, they definitely restrict liberties of all kinds in order to live collectively and achieve their goals. Right. So it's not like there's some ingrained, immutable sense of liberty that is divorced from the collective and community living. It depends what works in a given context. Right. And we need to realize that instead of sort of hanging on to ideas that just don't work anymore. Well, you are such a great guest to have, Sarah. You've shone a, a really bright light on some of these very confused concepts that a lot of people hold very close to heart as well. The idea of autonomy, for example, is seen as this undivorceable value from who we are. But then also how you've spoken about the balance between rights and responsibilities and the different ways in which we can implement through a progressive framing so that it's ultimately towards a bigger good for society. I know for sure that this is going to be such a refreshing concept for our listeners. It definitely has been for us. And we're really grateful that 
you took the time to meet with us and you articulated everything so simply. Yes, thanks. But I want to say thank you guys so much. It was fun to be here. It was fun to have people asking me questions who actually knew what they were talking about, were familiar with the work, and who asked such intelligent, good questions. It made it really, really fun for me. Well, Sarah gives us all plenty to think about. I think she makes it clear that given our current challenges like climate change and ecological devastation, we'll need to cooperate at the national level, the global levels like we never have before. And I think she's right that emphasizing the values of individual autonomy and liberty make that cooperation much harder. As Sarah makes it clear, when the harm is big enough, as in the case of climate change, there is an ethical foundation for using incentives for people to choose smaller families. And I think she does acknowledge that we should be careful in designing incentives to minimize coercion. She makes it clear that the real coercion is maximizing individual liberty and doing nothing. Because in that scenario, with continuing growth of population and consumption, we're going to be facing a coercion of natural limits and much less of liberty and autonomy. For sure. And it looks like we already are facing the coercion of natural limits. I actually find that in our current pronatalist world, the idea of individual autonomy, or rather procreative autonomy, is falsely held up as a biological truth that everyone is destined to have children. Meanwhile, pronatalist forces are hard at work constructing a quote-unquote desire for parenthood that is often not well thought out, or in many patriarchal situations, people don't even have the choice to not have children, which you know we call a form of coercive pronatalism. And uh, this is where I feel our work in challenging pronatalism is so important so that people can truly make relatively liberated and responsible procreative decisions. Well said. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Visit populationbalance.org to learn more. And if you have feedback to share or guest recommendations or a topic you'd really like us to discuss, feel free to write to us using the contact form on our site, populationbalance.org or by emailing us at podcast at populationbalance.org. If you feel inspired by our work, please consider supporting us using the donate button. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajaj, thanking you for your interest in our work and for all your efforts in sustaining our beautiful, life-giving planet.